0: Forget about splurging on a pricey trip to the Mediterranean. Let your taste buds do the traveling instead. Dive into your favorite Mediterranean flavors and score some savings at Whole Foods Market until March 19th. Start with the perfect main course, like sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, whole branzini, or some bone-in beef short ribs. And then pair it with the perfect wines from across the region, starting at $8.99. Of course, you must be 21. Please drink responsibly. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. If you
1: guys know me, you know that I love to plan ahead. And this summer, I've made plans to go to Hawaii with my family and enjoy the warm tropical vibes. I'm also doing it because it's my mum's 70th birthday. I even already booked my ticket and an Airbnb. I love staying at Airbnb because I like the at-home feeling that I get. And it also makes me feel like a local during my trip. If you're anything like me, you've probably considered this idea. Could my home be an Airbnb too? Because it's surprisingly simple. You don't need a whole house and you could just start with your extra spare room. Plus, it's a great way to earn some extra money when you're away. So consider becoming an Airbnb host because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com forward slash host.
2: Failures make us learn. Failures make you stronger. Pain makes you stronger. Everyone in the world knows Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold
3: Schwarzenegger
0: has been an A-lister and a governor. One of the most famous human beings on earth
2: for
1: most of his life. We've entered your mind. That's what it feels like. If you don't know where you want to go or who
2: you want to be, you eventually just float around and you eventually crash. I promised the people that they're number one, Mm. but I promised my wife that they're going to be number one. So there's a dilemma.
1: Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to invite you to join this community to hear more interviews that will help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. All I want you to do is click on the subscribe button. I love your support. It's incredible to see all your comments and we're just getting started. I can't wait to go on this journey with you. Thank you so much for subscribing. It means the world to me.
0: The best-selling author and host. The number one health and wellness podcast. On purpose with Jay Shetty.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world, thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn, and grow. Now, today's guest, I mean, embodies health in so many ways, and I can't wait to dive into his mindset, his attitude, his routine, his history and the journey he took to be here. It's someone who needs no introduction. Please welcome to On Purpose, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is great to be here with you. I'm so thankful that you've invited us into your space. It's fascinating to look around and be here with you. And thank you so much, Arno.
2: Absolutely. It's nice to have you here. I've been here in this office for the last 33 years. As a matter of fact, I built the building in 1984. And then this property was, there was a railroad going through here. And then first we leased it the property, and then the the railroad company was willing to sell it, so we then bought it and built this building. And First, it was kind of a commercial office building with insurance companies and banks and stuff like this in here. Mm -hmm. Then I decided that I want to move in here in 1990, five years later, and uh, make it an entertainment building. Then Oliver Stone moved next door to me and left when he came out of the elevator because he's more left wing than I am, so he had to go to the left. I was more right wing, so I was going to the right, which is this office. And then Rainey Harlem came in here and Gina Davis and uh, Johnny Carson came in here. So everybody, it was like totally like the hip entertainment kind of a building. Wow. And uh, so we have enjoyed this building ever since and it's just a great space. And I have kind of like moved a lot of my movie (laughs) memorabilia here. You see an alligator here that is from Eraser, you see Batman from Batman and Robin, there's Mr. Freeze and there's Terminator from Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, and you see the Predator and this, you know, all kinds of... And then all kind of interesting uh, political leaders mm-hmm. from both sides, from the left and the right, you know, just because I don't really care that much about those things. So it's uh, you have John F. Kennedy have Ronald Reagan, you have President Lincoln, you have Teddy Roosevelt over here. Uh, so you have different leaders. And then we also have those that uh, have been losers, which is Stalin. I got this as a gift from a Russian weightlifter, from the R- Russian Weightlifting Federation. And uh, so I've collected them also.
1: Yeah, I feel like we've entered your mind. That's what it feels like when you enter this room, like all these aspects of yourself. I was, I was wondering, what's your earliest childhood memory that you think defines the person you are today. I heard somewhere you mentioned, your father made you earn your breakfast. And I was thinking, what does that feel like? What does you know, that
2: mean? I, I really don't know exactly what it was that gave me the drive or gave me the ability to visualize my goals in order. But I think it was a combination of things, of growing up after the second world war in 1947, I was born and to grow up with no food, with starvation and, Uh, Feynman and uh, you know my mother going around what they call hamstering which means begging uh, at various different farmers for food so she had food for the children so all of that I think had an impact uh, and a strict upbringing my father was very strict you know we were hit many times and punished for not doing the things the way they thought we should do things we had to earn breakfast, like you said. You know, we had to do push-ups and sit-ups and compete, uh, knee bends and all this stuff, running around the, the house uh, in order to be allowed to have breakfast. Uh, so I think all of that contributed, you know. And, and also, I think, having the military around, the British military that was, because they occupied that area of Austria. They came always around with their tanks and with the big trucks and everything. And I think that gave me the fascination of, uh, you know, becoming a tank driver myself and I went into the Austrian army. Ever since then, I have had a fascination with big cars, big trucks, with tanks and stuff like that. And I now have the tank that I drove in the military, I now have over here in Los Angeles. And it's at the Melody Ranch, where they have a lot of various different military vehicles and they do the upkeep and they drive it like once a month, and especially with after-school kids that are staying in school in the afternoons and so on. So we have a lot of fun with that. Do you still drive it? Yeah, yeah, I, I drive it every month. Oh, yeah, wow. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. But that's why I have Hummers, you know, the big military trucks and, and, and cars and SUVs and uh, the ashkash the and all of this. It's, it's, it's a certain craziness that never leaves you, you know. <laughs> and you know, boys and their toys, right? I mean, yeah, it's. <laughs> absolutely. Did yeah.
1: Absolutely. You said somewhere as well that you're – You felt like your father was maybe struggling with some post-traumatic stress disorder like he had that energy that kind of came through onto you guys
2: well you know my father was a very complicated guy obviously um i never really got to know him that well you know by the time i left it was like i was 18 years old i went in the military then i moved to munich then i moved from munich to america so i really was not home i wish The day I could have a conversation with him because I'm much smarter now. I'm much more interested in various different issues like that, what makes someone tick, what makes someone, you know, happy and suffer, whatever. So, in those days, we didn't talk about any of that, you know. So it's, it's, but he was complicated because he was a victim of the Second World War, meaning that he was dragged into the war, became a, a soldier. A Nazi officer, you know, was shot at in, in, in Stalingrad or Leningrad, I should say. And, and he was, you know, uh, buried under the rubble of, of buildings that uh, collapsed on top of him for three days. And then he had back surgeries and then he was shipped back home <laughs> to Austria. And that actually probably would saved him because he got out of Russia uh, just on time before the whole thing collapsed. And uh, so it, it, it created a certain kind of a thing. He had malaria. So he was suffering from malaria. He was suffering from shrapnel's moving around in his body. He was depressed, obviously that they lost the war in the first place. So that must have had an impact on all this man because everyone around me, when I grew up was kind of drinking. And so the people only drink when they're really unhappy. You know, or you drink a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. Like I sometimes do, but not to get drunk, uh, per se, like they did. So there was a lot of drinking going on, a lot of violence going on, hitting the kids, not just my dad hitting me or my brother, but the the neighbor hit his kids and the other neighbor hit it. I mean, as a matter of fact, a a regular kind of a parent-teacher's day will be when the parents come into the classroom. They will go up to the teacher, they talk for a few minutes, and then they go, Go to the kid in the classroom and smack them, but every parent was wow. doing that. It was just the wildest kind of a thing. That's I mean, insane. It would be great for comedy today, I think, you know, <laughs> because now I have to laugh about it because people are all kind of like laughing about it because we knew, like, when my dad came in, you know, he then had this look, you know, first he talked to the teacher, and then all of a sudden was this this look towards me. Then he would just come over and boom, we smack you. <laughs> then we walk out. And then some old lady would come in with a, with a walking cane. And she was the grandmother of one of the kids that was sitting next to me. And uh, she would go to the teacher. And then she would walk over with her cane and she'd take her cane and smack the kid <laughs> over the head with the cane. And so this was normal. Wow. So, you know, so that's what I'm saying. It's It was such a, a, a different way of upbringing then maybe you had, or that the kids have today, or that my kids had, in a way, there was always love and affection for them. Yes, there was discipline, but it was all done in a measured way and not with hitting and stuff like that. So it's, 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 it's a, I, but I think all of this had an impact yeah. on my, uh, the way I, I viewed the world and my drive to get out of there, out of Austria and to come to America and to get into bodybuilding and all those kind of things.
1: What was the most intense part of your involvement in the military? What was the most intense experience you had there? Obviously, there was this experience at home and at school, as you just said. But I think that
2: um, the military, even though when I went through it, it was really tough. But I have to say that when I look back at it, I recommend it very strongly for any, any young man or woman as fast as that goes to go through that because you learn how to be tough. You get up at five in the morning, you run for an hour, then you do your basic training, you know, crawling on all fours and with a gun in your hand and shooting and uh, learning how to drive motorcycles and cars and trucks and tanks. You learn about leadership, but you also learn simple things like how to iron your shirt, how to sew on buttons, uh, how to iron your, your pants, how to brush your shoes, how to clean your shoes, clean belt buckles and this. So it becomes kind of self-sufficient. And it gives you, I think, a certain amount of confidence that I don't need to be babied by anybody. Mm. I can take care. I can cook, which you learned there, you know, the basic foods. Uh, as a matter of fact, we made scrambled eggs on top of the tank. Because the back of the motor would be so, so hot, hot. Wow. so we just put the eggs on top and just scrambled it there and ate it off, off the tank dirty as it was right so but I mean so you feel kind of look I can handle food I can handle ironing my own stuff I can handle washing my own stuff I don't need anybody to do those kind of you know stupid chores I can do it myself mm. and I feel good doing it myself so there's a lot of things like that that you learn in the army it just gives you a certain base where you don't get afraid of anything. You feel like I've gone through all kinds of hell now with the military, You know they make sure of that. And so I think that, that's really terrific. But I remember there were times that were really tough. Like, for instance, if you make a mistake, they will have you open up the hatch that is underneath your seat and uh, where the driver's seat is of the tank, and you open up that hatch and it falls out. And then they have you crawl out of that hole and then drive, uh, then crawl under the tank in the mud and uh, with your uniform on and everything. And then you have, to, you have to climb up the back of the tank, up the deterrent, down the turret, back to your driver's seat, and then out that hole again. And they do that like 50 times. So by the time you do it, it's like hours later mm-hmm. and uh, you, uh, you literally collapse. You're so exhausted. For more of this stuff, so there's punishments like that that were really really tough. So I would not wish that on anybody. To be <laughs> honest with you, I mean I could handle it, but I, I think I can I could handle it because I was 18 years old, and you know you're very very tough when you're 18. You yeah, can handle yeah. just about anything. You know, you yeah. have the endurance and the strength. And I was and I was in the middle of my weightlifting and bodybuilding career, so I was also strong, but it was strong will also. So to me, it was all kind of It was good, but it was tough.
1: Yeah, what was your first, I know that you've talked about how like you wanted to get out of Austria, you wanted to get away, but what was your first glimpse of America? Like what was your first experience of the United States
2: that you had? The first experience was, I was competing in Florida, in Miami. So to me, Miami was the first experience really. Arriving in in New York, changing planes, and then flying to Miami. I came from London to New York and then from New York to Miami. That to me was the first experience. You know, the high rises, the beautiful hotels, the water, uh, the boats, everyone had a boat there. <laughs> said myself, Jesus, can you believe that? I mean, everyone, they have an apartment on the, uh, at, the, at the canal, uh, the waterway, and then they have a boat. And they were just all cruising around and we were invited. We bodybuilders that were competing in the competition. We were invited on boat rides. There was this one bodybuilder that had a boat for like 10 people. So we were going around and we saw how much fun they had, you know, how well people lived, how happy they were. To me, that was like a really interesting experience. Unlike the experience when I came to California because I felt like, okay, I'm coming to California. And I'm going to see all the things that made me want to come here. Muscle Beach. But Muscle Beach by that time was closed. (laughs) You know, they closed it in the 60s. And uh, so there was no Muscle Beach per se. Then Gold's Gym was not as big as I thought it's going to (laughs) be. The buildings, when you look around out here, we're in Venice right now. It's it's still today, very low buildings compared to the high-rises in New York. So I thought that there would be high-rises here also, Los Angeles, high-rises. And then when I, when my friends took me to Hollywood, they tried to convince me, this is Hollywood. I mean, look at this. And I looked around, and I just couldn't see anything, <laughs> right? So I thought there would be studios left and right of Hollywood Boulevard. There would be studios. <laughs> there would be Paramount Studios, and there would be Sony and then there will be, you know, uh, Columbia, Disney, and Warner Brothers. And all of the studios will be lined up left and right <laughs> with hotels and luxury and all. And I go down to Hollywood Boulevard, and it was like a bunch of homeless people running around and weirdos and drug addicts and hippies. And that's what I saw, and, I said, and, and tourists, you know. So I said to myself, this is Hollywood? They said, well, I you, know, you have to understand, this is daytime. At night, it really lights up. <laughs> and then I said, well, why don't you bring me here at night when it really lights up? <laughs> so and they took me at night, and it was also very disappointing. Yeah. There was a few lights and a few billboards. But, you know, I just, yeah. I came from London, yeah. right? So I've been, but at that point, I've been several times to London because I was competing in bodybuilding in London, and I started my bodybuilding career there. So I saw Piccadilly Square and I saw lights. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw action. It was like staggering. That really blew me away, Yeah, you know? And then driving on this double decker buses and the and the transportation with the subway or the tube, or whatever mm-hmm. they, they call underground, whatever yeah, they call yeah. it in England, and, and all of this to me, the airport, the Heathrow airport and all this, that really blew me away. But when I came to America, when I came to Los Angeles, I had a vision like it would be like that, but it wasn't., <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I was very, very disappointed in the beginning, until I got used to it, and until I understood mm. that this is earthquake country, mm. that you don't build high-rises, you know, because they would collapse. Mm-hmm. Later on, as time went on, they figured out the, the technology to put them on rollers. Uh, or, on major tires, or something like so that it moves so they don't collapse. but I mean I, I learned to understand all of that later on, but the first thing was a shock to me in a negative way. <laughs> but then when I, mean, I got used to uh, Los Angeles, and when I got used to the gym uh, and used to the members and the kindness of the American people and the sweetness of the bodybuilders, you know, that would invite me on Thanksgiving when I didn't even know what Thanksgiving was. Yeah. And they would invite me, a stranger mm-hmm. like me, to their home for Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. Or they would come and show up at my apartment with silverware because I didn't have any. Yeah. With dishes, with uh, blankets, pillowcases, bed sheets. And I remember this one girl gave me like a a radio, a, ha- a wooden radio for my aunt's table next to the bed, which I still have next to my bed mm-hmm. today.
1: Wow. So,
2: you know, because I wanted to keep that because it was like, it was, it symbolizes, whenever I look at that radio, it symbolizes the generosity of the American people and how it was kind of like included when I moved over here and all of that. So it was, there was a lot of, interesting lessons that I've learned right away when I came over here, you know, the difference between cultures and all that between Austrians and Germans and British and uh, the Americans and all that.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of what you just said about first coming to Hollywood, I think it's very common when people go to Hollywood Boulevard and have a very glamorous view of what it might be, but but it isn't. And what you were reminding me of just now is just this idea of how everyone has like dreams and visions of what something might be. And then when you experience it, you get a sense of how you view it through your own eyes. And for me though, what I'm, what I'm fascinated by is who was, your, who was your first ever bodybuilding coach? And do you remember your first ever tournament? How did it go? Yeah, no,
2: I've, uh, there was a fellow by the name of Quid Manul, who uh, was Mr. Austria. Now, you have to imagine when you're like 14 years old, like I was, and 15, and Mr. Oster was like, oh, it's a big star. Yeah. He came out to that lake where I grew up. It was like a lake where there was on weekends like three, 4,000 people around that lake, lying in the grass and uh, on blankets and then swimming in that lake. And it was kind of a muddy kind of a lake. And he came out there, and he looked like God. <laughs> he was very good friends with the swimming coach, the guy that kind of took care of everything there at the lake and they were working out and they were inviting me to work out with them. So to me, that was kind of the first experience where someone kind of dragged me in and inspired me. Mm. And I said, oh my God, can you imagine looking like that? And he, if he wanted it or not, happened to be very good. Mm because he said to me, he says, well, Arnold, in five years, you could look like me. And I was saying, I was visualizing right away, oh, my God, can you believe that if I could look like that and I'm Mr. Austria? Yeah. And I said, that was, like, major. And I just felt like this is almost kind of my, my new dad. Yeah. <laughs> he was 32 years old, and he became kind of like a mentor. He invited me then, first of all, he invited I realized that they invited always these athletes out there to the lake, shot putters and javelin throwers and weightlifters and boxers, bodybuilders. I mean, all kinds of athletes, they all would work out together Mm. and have a good time. And we kids were kind of like hanging out with them. And every so often we would work out with them. So So I got my real early inspiration that way. And then I went down to the club, to the weightlifting club. I started working out and start really become religious about it. It was like, this was my new life. And I started having visions, very clear visions of being a Mr. Austria. Then there were pictures of the Mr. Europe contest. So I visualized myself being in the Mr. Europe contest and winning. And then I saw pictures of Reg Park, which is a British bodybuilder, who then subsequently, later on, moved to South Africa, married a South African woman by the name of Marianne, and uh, they created a family in South Africa. So that what became kind of my idol, and I saw pictures of him winning Mr. Universe in London, and so that was my new vision. Mm. So I started really creating through this guy's a vision, and they, but that vision was so vivid, so clear, that I felt like... All I had to do now is just follow through with the work. So let me now find out what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I read about Reg Park, how did he train? He trained like four or five hours a day and uh, he didn't sound so many sets, and so many reps. And this are the exercises he did, he did the bench press, the incline press, the, the curl, the shoulders presses and the this and that. And I just wrote everything down and I started following his routine. And I was absolutely convinced that I will be another Reg Park. Mm. And so that's how I really developed my first rule that I always talk about to success is you got to have a very clear vision of where you want to go. Because if you don't have that, you're just floating around. Mm. And so, you know, I was very fortunate that I created that vision. I was very fortunate that there was not the side kind of things going on we didn't have a phone in our house we didn't have a television in our house Uh, at that time there were no iPhones there were no iPads there was no computer there was just really you had all the time in the world to think Mm. and to really just sit quietly and to just visualize Mm. and uh, I always say that I feel sorry for kids today that are spending hours and hours on that iPhone or an iPad or computer And they don't give themselves that chance to just settle back and to just figure out what do they want to do or who do they want to be? Mm. And uh, so this is why I think that I made that kind of, the rule number one is you know, visualize. And I always compare it to that you can have the best airplane in the world uh, with the most advanced pilot. But if he doesn't even know where to go, it's just going to fly around until it crashes. Mm. And that's what happens to you in life. If you don't know where you want to go and who you want to be, you eventually just float around and you eventually crash. And uh, that's why a lot of people are unhappy. Yeah. They, or they take drugs or they drink or the suicide rates. I think a lot of it has to do because people really don't have as much of a purpose and the mission and the vision And all of the things, the things that drove me from the time I was like 15 years old, it was very clear which direction I want to go.
1: I couldn't be more excited to share something truly special with all you tea lovers out there. And even if you don't love tea, if you love refreshing, rejuvenating, refueling sodas that are good for you, listen to this. Radhi and I poured our hearts into creating Juni sparkling tea with adaptogens for you because we believe in nurturing your body and with every sip, you'll experience calmness of mind, a refreshing vitality, and a burst of brightness to your day. Juni is infused with adaptogens that are amazing natural substances that act like superheroes for your body to help you adapt to stress and find balance in your busy life. Our Super 5 blend of these powerful ingredients include green tea, ashwagandha, acerola cherry, and lion's mane mushroom, and these may help boost your metabolism, give you a natural kick of caffeine, combat stress, pack your body with antioxidants, and stimulate brain function. Even better, Juni has zero sugar and only five calories per can. We believe in nurturing and energizing your body while enjoying a truly delicious and refreshing drink. So visit drinkjuni.com Today, to elevate your wellness journey and use code on purpose to receive 15% off your first order. That's drinkjuni.com. And make sure you use the code on purpose. Yeah, I love that you start the book with that rule of yeah. have a clear vision because when you hear about your childhood, it's not easy, it's tough, it's rough, it's harsh. There's so many. Internal challenges at home, there's external challenges, there's limitations that you're in a country that's obviously just survived a world war. It almost looks like there is no space to have vision. That's right. Like someone could argue that, Arnold, like, I mean, how are you having a vision in this space? I think what's really interesting is sometimes we feel helpless because of where we're born, where we're from our parenting structure, our surroundings. Some people struggle to have a vision because they say, well, how can I have a vision? I'm, look where I am. And then some other people, they can't have a vision because when they see someone like Reg Park or Mr. Austria in your example, what they see is, oh, envy. I wish I had that, you know, like, oh, why does he have that? Or maybe, you know, I should have that. So I think we live in these two worlds where we either feel helpless or sometimes we feel envious and egotistical about, visions, how did you allow yourself or how did you develop that ability that even though around you, there wasn't that much success, there was more stress, but you saw Mr. and were able to do that. Do you, have you ever figured out what that was compared to everyone else you grew up around?
2: I just can tell you, I was very unhappy. Yeah. I was unhappy with the reality mm. of what was around me, you know, the tough parents and the lack of food, and others had steaks. We didn't have the money for that. As a matter of fact, we never ate meat during the week. Now, today they would say, oh, this is really good, because <laughs> you, you were vegan <laughs> yeah. as a kid, but it was more for, because of a lack of money. Uh, so we didn't have anything. So everywhere I looked, so I think to me, the only way really was in order to be happy is to create my own world mm. and to visualize. Mm. You know, that's why people sometimes read a lot because they want to escape into another story or the day they watch movies to go and to see another, to escape into another story and all this stuff. For me, that wasn't available. In you know, the first movie I was always like, a, when I was like nine or 10 years old, it was not a common thing in the village where I grew up to go to movies. And I remember there was this collapsible kind of a seat I just fell right down on the on on <laughs> f- floor because I had never even heard of a collapse. It was, it, that you have to fold it down. Yeah. So I folded it down, then waited a little bit, and then, of course, it went back up again, <laughs> and I went right down on the, oh, to the floor. So because of that world, that negative world, I had to kind of create my own uh, world. So I was just always daydreaming of wonderful things. So it was it, I developed that art... And he put a smile on my face. Yeah. So clearly, when I then saw uh, Mr. Austria or Mr. Universe, and I saw these uh, guys and saw photographs of it and I read about it in the magazines, I created my vision. Mm. And I saw in that vision myself being up on that stage. Mm. And I saw myself, you know, people screaming around me uh, and screaming, Arnold, Arnold, Arnold. And and all this crazy stuff. It was all insane, crazy stuff. Uh, stuff that I never shared in those days with anybody. Mm-hmm. Because they, they would have put me in a mental institution, right? So, I mean, so I was just, I just remember that I was sitting in a classroom in school. I was like 13 years old, 14 years old. The teacher would be where you are now in front of me, teaching. And I would just slowly look off to the side, out the window, and I saw these green trees. And then all of a sudden I started seeing things. Mm. And I had a smile. It's just this wonderful stuff that I saw. And all of a sudden I had a chalk landed on my forehead. So the teacher threw a chalk at me kind of saying, hey, I'm here. I'm getting paid to teach you, to teach this class of 30. Why are you looking out the window? Now. I couldn't even articulate Mm. that this, what you're teaching here doesn't really blow up my skirt. Mm. uh, It's it's like, (laughs) it's not like kind of something that I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is what I just saw when I looked out there Mm. and I saw myself on that stage in London at the Mr. Universe contest, you know, Mm. and uh, things like that. So, so I think that with me, Visualizing became a normal thing. Mm. And I never really f- knew that I had really a, a very special ability to visualize and to connect the dots to say to myself, well, if I can see it, then it must be a reality. Mm. And I can m- make it a reality. Mm-hmm so for me the vision became a reality so it was only then a matter of following through with the work to get there and this is why in the book yes. one of the things i talk about is work your ass off mm-hmm. because every <laughs> single time when i had a vision about anything yeah i had to work my ass off but it was pleasure yeah see that is the great thing when you go to work and you know exactly why you're working, Mm. then it becomes fun, Mm -hmm. a challenge. Mm -hmm. It's entertaining sometimes. And uh, when you read that 78% of the American people hate their jobs, now think about that. I mean, that must be so depressing that you go, let's say you're working in some car plant, And you do like, you know, kind of the same work, putting a window into a car over and over, you know, 50 times a day, every day, all year long for 30 years. I mean, it's tough. Mm. And so this is why it's so important that we really have a clear vision so that you know where to go and that wherever it is, Mm -hmm. if it is to become a great auto mechanic, Or if it is to become a great teacher or politician or a high tech engineer, whatever it is, but have a vision. And then you go after that and you shoot for that. Because now every step of the way is going to be great. Mm. You know, when when you pick uh, a doctor, let's say, I want to be a a doctor. I want to be a surgeon. A kid says to himself at the age of 15. Well, From that point on, he knows all the classes he has to take already in high school and then when he goes to college he knows which university to go, what kind of classes is to take, and then how long would it take him? And all of this stuff. So there is a reason for going to school rather than, oh my parents told me that I have to go to college. And you just go to fulfill this obligation, but there's no goal. Yeah. That's what happens to a majority of of kids today they don't have the goal. And that's why they end up being one of the 78% that are unhappy with their jobs and they wish they could change jobs, but, but then it's too late because now you've created a family and you have to pay for, you know, your rent for the apartment and you have to put food on the table. And you have to provide money for the kids and for your wife and for the family and all this stuff. So it's really tough. So that's why so many people are really always looking for an answer or searching for an answer. How can I improve my life? How can I make it a little bit better and all this stuff? And this is why I did the book, you know, Be Useful.
1: I'm glad that you put it in that order though, because I think for everyone who's listening and watching, a lot of people will say, I do work hard. I'm working my ass off. I'm working my socks off. I'm like doing everything I can. But I think what's really important is that in the book you start with have a clear vision. And I agree. I think there are a lot of people who are working really, really hard. And it's almost like if that hard work was channeled toward a clear vision, as you say, then that hard work pays off. Right. Because otherwise, a lot of people just working hard, getting stressed, putting on pressure, but there there isn't that vision. Have you found, what was the greatest sacrifice you ever made in your life, do you think? And what was the reward that you gained from it? What was the biggest sacrifice?
2: That is really the question is... Is it really a sacrifice?
1: Because you love it.
2: Exactly. To me, it's also a real question is the word discipline. Mm. Because I tell you, I've felt many times that I'm not a disciplined person. Mm. But People always insist they say, "Oh, it must take so much discipline every day to get up, and every day you went to gym at seven in the morning, and you worked at the nine thirty in the morning, and then you went to college after that, and then you went this and that, and you worked in construction." So I was like looking forward to getting up in the morning, and looking forward driving to the gym, and working out two and a half hours, and then going down to the beach and taking a run in the deep sand, and uh, getting some cardio work done in order to. I said, I was looking forward to it. It was not like, oh my God, I have to do another workout. Yes, you do that when, for instance, sometimes people go to the gym and the doctor says, you know, you should go to the gym and you should work out because otherwise, you know, I see some problems coming up, high cholesterol and body fat and this and that. And you're going to go and wipe out, you know, 10 years younger than you want to. Oh, if there's ever the right time to wipe out. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, in any case, so that person you can see in the gym is there and they just, they do their reps and they do their sets and they're not really into it.
3: Mm.
2: You can see there's no life in their eyes. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, yeah, really, they grab the weight and they just do their sets and they get the pump and they feel good and they put the weights down and get the next heavier weight and they do the set. And so that's really fun. But that person is kind of like a vegetable in a way. They just cruise around in the gym they sit on the life cycle and they just pedal away and when you say to them I this so why do you work out mm. they have no answer mm. uh, then eventually they say well to be honest with you the doctor told me that i should get in shape that's better for my health mm. to bring my blood pressure down and my cholesterol down and my body fat down and all this. so they're not really so i say to them always i said you know what you should do is you should just pick a goal that you can chase They would say, like, what? I said, well, how much do you weigh? Mm -hmm. I'm weighing 190 pounds. And I want to to lower my body fat, body weight. I said, well, why don't you pick a goal like you want to go down to 170? Mm. And and it is now March. And by August, when you go to the beach, you're going to have a slimmer waist, less body fat, and you look leaner, and you can be proud of your body. They'll pick that go, "Oh, that's a good idea. say write it down and then write down the sets you have to do to get you there, and the amount of reps you have to do and the amount of life cycle that you have to uh, run and regular bicycle and running that you have to do. write all of this down and then you mark it off every day you mark it off. That's what I did. To me, there was really the, that feedback that I see a line being crossed. That means one was set was done. Hmm. It was a satisfying kind of a thing. The line was crossed off. The next line was crossed off. And so I tell people that and then they just say, oh my God, this is, yeah, yeah I'm going to do that. That is such a great idea. Then they come back to me <laughs> like a few months later and they say, this worked. Oh, good. it was unbelievable. It worked. It was fantastic. And it really gave me a purpose. You see, So that's what it's, it's a, why it's so important to have a purpose when you do things, have a clear vision when you do things, because then you don't have to look at it kind of like, I have to be really disciplined to do that, or I have to make certain sacrifices to do that, because then it just drags mm-hmm. you into that direction and you just do the work. You know. so that's what I think is always that. But, Clearly, there were sacrifices. Like, let me just give you one example. Yeah, please. What do you think it's like when you go and you run for governor and you promise the people that you are going to be my number one priority? Now you win. (laughs) Now you have to do the work. Mm. But now you come home and your kids are crying on the dinner table when you come home. And daddy, you didn't come to my recital on Monday. Daddy, you didn't come to my football practice on Tuesday. Daddy, you promised me that you come into the school and you take me to school. You didn't this week. So that mm. is devastating when the kids are crying and complaining, mm. and you say to yourself, You know, I promised the people that they're number one, Mm. but I also promised my family. I promised my wife when we had the first child that they're going to be number one. So that's a dilemma. Now you're in a dilemma. And now you have to make certain sacrifices. And I had to make certain sacrifices when it comes to spending time with my family where my wife had to pick up the slacks Mm. and she had to do the extra work. So there were sacrifices made that were painful sometimes. When you see your kids crying, that's painful. Mm -hmm. And then you know it's your fault. But that's the situation you're in. And you put yourself in this situation. You had a choice to run for governor or not to run for governor, right? If I would have continued with my movie business, those kids were in heaven. Because they were in a movie in my makeup trailer. They were watching me getting made up as the Terminator uh, or for any of those kind of movies. They were in my motorhome, and they were doing their homework in the afternoon there. They brought their friends with them. So that was fun. Now, all of a sudden, they go up to Sacramento, and everyone is running around with a suit and with a tie, and they come to me and say, Dad, what, is this? What, what did you do? Why are you having this job? Now They were like 11, 12 years old, and they say, Why do you have this job now? I say everyone has a suit and a tie, and everyone looks really serious, and they all attack you. They say bad things about you. I say, why? Well, this is the way it's in politics. I say, as soon as you run, first you have like a 80% popularity, and then as soon as you run, this, your, your, your popularity goes down to 50%, because 50% of the other side, uh, the other party. Yeah. So you run as a Republican, so it's 50% with the Democrats, they hate you, or they don't like you. And then the, the Republicans like you. But they don't even like you because they say, yeah, he's doing too socially liberal, whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, so, so, so my campaign manager always says, he says, Arnold, 20% of the people hate their mother, so don't worry about someone hating you. It's just <laughs> the way it is in politics, you know. So anyway, so this is, so you have to make sacrifices like that. Imagine a sacrifice you have to take when you come to this country. I mean, you know what it's like. You leave everything behind. My friends,
3: mm-hmm.
2: my parents, my relatives, Everything that was around me that was kind of like a sure thing. Mm -hmm. I had a job after the military that I could go to to continue on the job that I did as a salesman. I had all of this and I left all this for uncertainty because there was no certainty coming to America. There was Joe Weeder that said, I'm going to help you. find your apartment. I find your car. Yes, there were some people that helped a lot. He's the one that gave me the airline ticket to come to America and all this stuff. Joe Weider is the publisher of the Muscle magazines. He has passed away in the the meantime, but I mean, he was like the guru of bodybuilding. He created bodybuilding. The Federation was created by his brother, Ben Weider. And Joe had an endless amount of magazines and uh, distribution company for weight equipment for food supplements and all that. So he brought me here, so there was some help like this. But I mean, I I walked away from all of this comfort to come to America. So yet there were major, major sacrifices like that. But I really never looked at it in that way because I just said to myself, "I want to go to America. I want to go and be there and work my way up to become the greatest bodybuilder of all times." And that's, you know, we are talking about one of the other rules. Yes. Is in in, in my book, which is that to shoot for big goals. Yeah.
1: Never think small. It's
2: just as much energy or as little energy as shooting for a little goal. You know, it's just as much hassle when you have a little goal. Like say, if I would say, I want to be Mr. Austria. Well, that's as much working out than working out for Mr. Europe or Mr. Universe. Mm. So, I mean, uh, you might as well just continue on and just say, okay, all I have to do now, the difference really is that you have to become a real professional. You have to know how to pose, you have to have the right tan. you have to take the right food supplements, you have to eat the right food, you have to really fine tune, you have to get the definition. It's not just the size of the body. So the higher up you go, the more complicated it gets to win. And uh, so, but I said to myself, to me to, to shoot for the goal of being a world champion It's just as easy as shooting for a goal of being Mr. Austria, being the Austrian champion. So I just went all out. And not only to to win the world championships in bodybuilding, but to go beyond Reg Park, who won at that point three Mr. Universe titles, to go beyond that and to say, I want to actually become the greatest bodybuilder of all time. All times. That that was my, my goal. And so that's why I had to come to America where there is Muscle Beach, where there's Gorge Gym, where all the champions work out together, where there's Joe Weider that can be helpful and publish you and put you on the cover of his magazines and all of this to do the promotion, the campaign, the training, the marketing of bodybuilding and all that. So to me, this was really the only way to go is to come to Los Angeles. And on top of it, Los Angeles is known for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And this is my next career. (laughs) So I always say to myself, the word Reg Park, I saw him in Hercules movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, can you believe that, that this guy won Mr. Universe three times and then he was discovered in Rome, in Chinichita? And I saw him there and I yeah. said, Oh my God, you are Hercules. Hercules yeah. We're going to send you to acting classes, into acting school, and you're going to play Hercules. And then Steve Reeves did the same thing who was another Mr. Universe from 1940, I know, 1950. Yeah, Steve Reeves from 1950, Reg Park, 1951. So both of them became Hercules. Then there was many other bodybuilders that became. <laughs> they did Hercules movies or those Gladiator movies and muscle movies and stuff like that in the 60s, It became very famous. But I mean, I said to myself, if Reg Park could get into movies, maybe when I go to America and I become the world's greatest bodybuilder, Mm. then they would ask me to go in the movies. And so this was the idea. So to me, it was natural. Oh, I said to myself, there's Hollywood in Los Angeles. There's Muscle Beach in Los Angeles. There's Coach Jim in Los Angeles. There's Chawita here. This is perfect. I have to go there. That was the reason why I went here. Did you ever have a plan B? I never believed in plan B uh, because I felt kind of like one of the rules we have in in my book is never listen to the naysayers. Yeah. You know, to me, I always felt kind of like every single dream of mine. And of course, I have to say they were outrageous dreams. So people said, this is stupid. Yeah. What is the matter with you? That would never happen. I mean, you, your dream is to go to America. What do you think, they're waiting for you over there? I mean, they've plenty of people over there. They've over 300 million in population. They don't need any more. And so that was the kind of saying. You see, you would never make it to America. And they don't need you. So No. Impossible. When I said I want to be a world champion in bodybuilding, it was impossible. When I said I want to get into movies, that was impossible. So it was always impossible. So I felt that we can go and defend ourselves from that and just not listen to the naysayers. Mm. But if I start having a plan B, then all of a sudden I'm becoming, in a way, a naysayer to myself. Wow, yeah, true. So because that means now that I'm saying, well, maybe this isn't working out. And if it's not working out, we should have a plan B. Mm. So to me, this is the most dangerous of all of the naysayers is me saying no, and it's impossible maybe to myself. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I felt the best way of handling that is is not to have a safety net and not to have a plan B. Mm. That I am at risk and therefore I have to be at all times on the edge mm-hmm. and a ten. so I don't fall where I would need a safety net. Yeah. This is the way I dealt with that issue. Mm-hmm. Never have a plan B, always go, for, go all out with my plan and really put 100% of effort into it in order to really achieve it. And and I just always believed in my goals. I mean, I remember when I ran for governor (laughs) and and people said, you're crazy. I mean, you know, this great Davis is going to take you out. And then if he doesn't, Bustamante is the lieutenant governor. These are all seasoned politicians. You don't know anything about politics and blah, blah, blah. Why don't you run first for mayor? And why don't you do this? Uh, No, I was very clear with my vision. I could see myself as the governor, because I felt that the people in California were very upset at the regular politicians. I mean, they were always talking about what they know and how smart they are and how they're going to fix things. In the meantime, we had a $30 billion deficit. In the meantime, we had blackouts. In the meantime... They were handing out driver's license to illegal immigrants, what they call undocumented immigrants. And and everything that the people were against Mm. and the people didn't like, the Indian gaming tribes were gambling and having gambling casinos, but not paying taxes. So they were mad about that. So I would just tell people, if I become governor, I will change all that. And the workers' compensation costs for businesses in California, I will cut that in half. That's why so many businesses left California because of the cost of doing business. So I said, I will cut that in half. And so this is exactly, people bought in because I was talking believable. I mean, there was, I could put my hand in the fire for the people to do the things that I promised. Those things will be done. And I said, I will do most of those things before breakfast, the first day when I'm in office. So that always sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, so, but the, the people bought in. And I remember that when President Bush and uh, those guys called me from the White House, and they said, you want the president to come out to campaign for you? I said, no, 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 no. I said, because then it becomes kind of a political thing about the, the Republicans are helping each other. And then Gray Davis is going to have out You know, Bill Clinton and Al Gore and John Kerry and, uh, you know, all of those guys. And that's exactly what happened. He had all those people come out, campaign for him. And I told all of my guys, no, don't come out. Because I wanted to be the David and not the Goliath. Mm. I want to be the underdog and kind of say, look, this is just between me and the voters. Mm. So that was my vision. Not a a political strategy vision, but I mean, that was my vision. I said, I have to be the person that is by himself, that is kind of crawling up there, and that is communicating with the voters. I don't need someone to speak for me or anything like that. Yes, you have uh, your communications director and all that stuff, but I didn't need to have President Bush come out and speak for me. I didn't have to have the vice president come out to speak for me or anything like this. I wanted this to be between me and the thing, and it worked people who figured it out that I'm out there, that I'm promising them and they bought into it and they they won. And so this is why it is so important that that you have really a 100% belief and not having to go and say, my plan B, if this doesn't work is I'm gonna go back to movies. Mm. Well, that would unfold anyway. But let's first go all out and not have a plan B.
0: Go to linkedin.com slash on purpose to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash on purpose. Terms and conditions apply.
1: I've always been on this mission to find things that really line up with what I care about for a healthier lifestyle. And that's when I discovered Laird Superfood. It felt like discovering a perfect match something that totally clicked with what I believe in and my goal for better health. One of their products that I absolutely love is their performance mushroom. They've collected some of the most powerful mushrooms in nature and brought them together in this amazing superfood blend. These different types of natural mushrooms, such as chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps and maitake are praised for their talent in fighting stress, supporting your immune system and giving your brain a boost. Another one that I love is their daily prebiotic greens. Each serving is a complete mix of fruits and vegetables fixing a common problem which is that 90% of Americans don't get enough vegetables and 80% don't get enough fruit in their diets. They taste like a light citrus burst from real food such as pineapple, lemon oil and orange oil, fruit powders such as apple, no heavy sugars, syrups or stevia. These greens are 40% more affordable than other big brands. You can get a month's supply in a bag for your daily routine at home or grab the single serve sachets for when you're on the go. Check out lairdsuperfood.com and grab yours today. Use the code ONPURPOSE20 when you check out and score 20% off your first purchase. Easter is right around the corner. That's right, this year Easter is Sunday, March 31st. Hop into some serious savings with 20% off pickup orders now through March 30th. Use promo code SPRING20 to save on all the things you need to build baskets they'll love at CVS. Find trending beauty buys, chocolate bunnies, delightful toys for kids, and so much more. Visit cvs.com forward slash Easter for details. Yeah, no, really, really great clarity again of just determination that there's no other options. And, And I like what you said, or what really connected with me at least, is this idea of how you can become your own naysayer. Right. That having a plan B is you talking yourself out of why you should go all in Or you're, on ready, or, or you're already
2: putting it on, on, on um, kind of shaky grounds. Yes, yes. The goal. Yeah, you're already you setting see, yourself up. You already up. say, well, if, well, wait a minute, if you say if, that means there's a possibility in your mind, this could fail and that is a dangerous road to go. Yeah. I well, think.
1: I agree. Where, yeah. where did you go when a few moments ago, you were talking about how the kids are upset when you're governor, obviously public gets upset, when someone's in a position of power, you've got all these people who rely on you personally and professionally. And you even said to yourself, like, I couldn't really talk about it. You can't really, no one can really understand that. What did you do at that time? Where did you go for connection and understanding and even getting to talk to yourself at that time?
2: Well, you just have to find, uh, you know, a compromise. So what you then do is you just say, okay, I'm gonna go and spend an extra day at home. So because there was the choice being in Los Angeles a lot of days, or to be in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. So I spent four days a week in Sacramento and three days a week in Los Angeles. And I decided then to spend another day in Los Angeles and to go to this school recital or to go to some kind of a practice sessions. Of uh, you know my kid playing football or baseball mm-hmm. or something like that, and to go to those things, so to to figure out a way, and it didn't take anything away from my public service, but it gave a little bit more time face time for the kids, and you know it really is a, absolutely crucial for the kids, not just to see their mom coming to school, but they need their dad mm-hmm. also, you mm-hmm. know, and so that's exactly what I did, and yeah. I totally understood. I talked to my wife about it. But like I said, on the end, she was really the one Mm. that was uh, the powerhouse uh, in the family because she spent, I would say, 80% of the time with the kids and I did 20% Mm. because I was stuck in Sacramento. And even though she worked also as First Lady and she was in Sacramento, but uh, she spent much more time with the kids. And luckily, when you have a good partner, then you can do a lot of those things. alone. I couldn't have done it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you, you mentioned, I think, in the documentary too, that if there was an Oscars for divorces, then you should get one because of how even in that circumstance, you both have found a way to let the kindness be, even the way you're speaking about yeah, the because, family today.
2: Because it's, it's kind of, the most important thing is, it's one thing if you suffer through it. It's another thing if your wife suffers through it. But the kids mm. are really totally innocent bystanders, right? So we had to, kind of, my wife and I were very good at working together mm. so the kids don't really feel a bump in the road mm. and that things are smooth for them. And uh, again, it's important. I mean, I saw it very clearly that it can be done, mm-hmm. and it, we did it. And we were very happy with, uh, with the outcome. We are very, very proud of our kids. I mean, they're extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I had the fortune of interviewing Catherine probably a couple of years ago when her book came out. Yeah, yeah. So I got to have some interaction with her yeah. and Maria and I've had several interactions too. And
2: Catherine yeah. is a carbon copy <laughs> of Maria <laughs> and Maria is a carbon copy of Eunice <laughs> and Eunice is a carbon copy of uh, Rose Kennedy. So this is how it goes down I mean, yeah. It's like, a, they're like clones. <laughs> you know, they're exactly, you know exactly what you get uh, from them. I mean, it's like... Uh, but Catherine, I mean, I'm so proud of her, of what a woman she has become, and so is with Christina, with my other daughter, mm-hmm. and uh, and the boys. It's just, it's a lot of fun. I never thought that having kids would be that much fun. I said because I, I only in the beginning I always thought about you know the work that it would take you know to take them to school and to go to the recitals and to the practices and to teach them and to have the swimming coach. over and you know it. You have to just be part of everything. You have Mm. to teach them, teach them, teach them. You know, from just swimming, to running, to football, to water skiing, snow skiing. Uh, You know, you have to just be on top of everything. And also um, having animals. Mm. Because one of the most important things with kids is, if you have the space, that is, if you're in a little tiny apartment, then maybe a cat is good. But I mean, normally it's kind of like, good when you have dogs. Or oh, when you have like, we have a, a miniature pony, we had horses, a donkey, and a Lulu, the miniature donkey. We had pigs. Now I have a pig again, <laughs> even the, the, the kids are not there anymore. <laughs> it never stops. But I mean, so, because the kids grow up with these animals and you teach them how to take care of them. Mm. This is extremely important. Because they have to have a sense of responsibility. Mm. You can't just say, oh, I would like to have a rabbit. or I would like to have a pig. Yeah, but you take care of it. Mm. And so that's what they've learned.
1: Mm. Yeah. One of the lessons in your book is sell, sell, sell. And we just talked about it now when you were talking about almost selling yourself to become governor. There's a certain promotion, marketing approach to galvanizing people to get behind you. And I think the word sales and selling has a lot of, a lot of people have a negative connotation or a difficulty with selling because it almost feels like there has to be something fake about it. I've always found that if you're proud of what you're selling, if you really believe in it, then it's easier to sell it. But generally people have a challenge with like the word sell. But you say one of your lessons is sell, sell, sell. So walk us through how you were able to, I mean, obviously, even all your, all the movies, the franchises you've created, it requires promotion, it requires selling. And of course, they were highly entertaining. But tell us what you learned about how to sell effectively, but also authentically.
2: First of all, I think you're totally right. That the word selling sometimes comes off sleazy. Mm. So that's why I can call it promotion or communicating or whatever you call it. And the point of it is, that you can have the best product in the world. Mm. But if no one knows about it, what's the point of the product? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would like to to know, uh, for instance, if there is someone out there that does a heart surgery or valve replacement without having to have open heart surgery. (laughs) Yeah. But if I don't know, I would just go to the hospital and say, I want to have an open heart surgery and I want to get the valve replaced. Mm -hmm. But if I know... Because they promoted it well, I can go now and call that expert, and then go. So, so this is why I think it's 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 so important. So to me, I learned the art of selling way back when I was 15 years old, when I was in trade school, and when I was working for this lumber yard kind of construction company, hardware store. It was like a combination of things. We were taught how to sell uh, the merchandise, and then sometimes we were able to follow the guy that is the boss. Mm. And he one time said to me, this is, uh, Arnold, why don't you help me here? And he would talk uh, to the customer. And I realized quickly that there was something odd going on that all of a sudden his attention focused on the wife. Because mm. this couple, they wanted to have some, you know, tiles for the bathroom and for the kitchen and uh, he first talked to him and how much money does he want to spend and all the stuff, what colors and all, then all of a sudden he was like, he ended up only talking to the woman. Mm. So he says, so what did you learn? I say, well, I learned that you were really very clear about all the advantages and disadvantages of the various different tiles mm. and the various different colors. That we. He says, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. But it's one dimension. But what else? I said, I don't know. He says, did you see how I shifted and my attention went from the husband to the wife? I said, yeah, yeah, what was that all about? And he says, well, I realized that he had really no interest Mm. in the tiles and what color it should be, what type, real tiles or fake tiles or or, or what. It was her vision and it was her desire to have new tiles. Mm. And he just went along with it because he's the husband. He's the provider of the family. He makes the money. She didn't make the money. uh, But she had a very clear vision of what she wanted. So I shifted my focus because I realized that she is the customer, not him. Mm -hmm. And you got to go and be able to reach the customer. Mm -hmm. And this is why I started talking to her more. uh, And then he just, out of courtesy, said to him, so what do you think? Should I deliver it on Thursday? And says, Yeah, whenever. He will just always say well, whatever. And she says, Friday is better because Friday my husband is at home in the afternoon so he can help you carrying all this stuff up to the second floor and blah, blah, blah. So she was much more precise. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he spent most of his time with that. So mm-hmm. those are the things that I've learned when I was selling. And how important it is to actually let the people know that you have this product. I was I went right after that. A few years later, I went to Munich and I, after the military, served there as a trainer in a bodybuilding gym. And we had like, I remember, 280 members. And there was another gym in Munich that had 500 members. And that guy, his name was Reinhard Smolana, he was Mr. Europe. Mm. And I was at this point, not Mr. Europe yet. I was junior Mr. Europe, but not Mr. Europe yet. And I didn't compete in any other international competitions. So I was training really hard. I said to myself, if I could go to the Mr. Universe contest and I compete and I do really well, I could maybe outdo him. Mm. And so this is what I did. I trained really hard for months. And then in September, was the Mr. Universe, end of September, Mr. Universe contest. And I happened to play second, which they call runner-up. Yes. So this was, my goal at that point was to be in the top six Mm. because I was 19 years old. Here was second place winner. So when I came back from London to Munich, I ran around on a construction site with just a bathing suit on, (laughs) like a lunatic. (laughs) And everyone was dressed up in their suits and everything. Yeah. Like this. And they said, "What is this guy doing?" And I was walking around on a construction site and greeting people and all this stuff, f- hoping that some press will show up because there's this crazy guy <laughs> running around in the cold weather with uh, just a ba- little bathing suit. Yeah. And sure enough, newspaper showed up, a photographer showed up, and they asked me afterwards, "Why are you running around like that?" And I said, "Well, I want to make sure that my gymnasium, universal gym." is in a newspaper <laughs> I said, oh, "That's what it is. okay well let's take a good shot why don't you take this saw over there and you help this guy with the construction set <laughs> doing some uh, cutting of the wood and stuff and then we would take we would create some pictures yeah. that are really funny and they put it in the newspaper the next day mm-hmm. and it says schwarzenegger just came back from mr universe was run up in a mr universe contest which makes him the biggest title holder In Germany.
1: Wow.
2: So I made it clear that they know that. Yeah. Not that the Mr. Europe is bigger, but the second in the Mr. Europe is is the biggest title holder. So so that was like, I was, now that story was in the paper. (laughs) And we had, within no time, we had uh, beaten him with the gymnasium membership Hmm. and had over 500. And his was low. And he, I remember him calling so I worked out in myself in his gym mm-hmm. because we worked out together because it's much better when you have a good training partner that is a champion himself. And we were laughing about it. So then, just to show you how important promotion is, so then he started secretly posting posters all over the city mm. on construction sites. in the Smolana gym, <laughs> we train you, you become a champion, more energy, healthier body, This, this, and that, and all this stuff. So when I saw the posters, I said, I'm going to go and create posters myself for the gym. So we created posters, and then we went. I followed him with the car. And he was going at 10 o'clock at night on Friday, putting the posters up there. And then after you put the poster up with the glue, Mm. he then left... And then I put my poster on top of his wet glue because I came right (laughs) after him. I didn't wait until it dries, went after him and glued my poster on top of him. And so this was kind of like the poster war amongst the gym owners. It was hilarious. (laughs) But it was all all about selling memberships Hmm. because I knew that my salary comes and is getting paid uh, from those monies that are coming in from uh, the members. And so I wanted to be able to buy food supplements. I wanted to be able to buy myself good food and the, the trips to those various different competitions. Mm-hmm. In order to say it was very important that our membership goes up, that we are very successful. But it's all about selling. And so when I came to America, there was in my blood now, mm-hmm. selling mm-hmm. And, and, and communicating and promoting. So when I did my, I remember my book promotion, Honor the Education of a Bodybuilder, Simon & Schuster wanted to have it. You're going to sell 100,000 copies. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I want to have it on the bestseller list. I don't know. No bodybuilding magazine was ever on the bestseller list. Forget about that. I said, well, I said, let's give it a shot. <laughs> How many cities do we go and promote the book? And he says, well, here's six cities I, I suggest. And so I said to him, I said, why don't we go to 30 cities? <laughs> You're crazy. So he was laughing. But then I put together a schedule and for 30 cities in 30 days. <laughs> and I was crisscrossing America. I was going from 90 degree temperature in Miami up to Minnesota that was like in the below zero. So there was literally like 100 degree temperature differences yeah. in the same day. So this is how much I crisscrossed this country and it was absolutely fantastic. We won a bestseller list. <laughs> we sold, you know, 250,000 hardcovers or whatever it was. And it was like a total smash as a bodybuilding and fitness book. Wow. And so, this is uh, again, over and over again, I've seen that not just the willpower to succeed, but to be able to sell mm. and to communicate and to be out there and to actually talk about it. You know, uh I think it's important to let people know. You don't have to force mm. the issue into the heart cell where you talk about it all the time, buy my book and buy this and buy this, this is the only way you're gonna stay healthy and all this stuff. No, you don't have to do that. You just in an indirect way. But the key thing is that when people walk away from the interview, that they know about it. And this is also very important, like for instance when when um we were doing Johnny Carson show, you know, I was learning at that time about bridging you know where you bridge from a specific subject that someone asks you to then what you want to talk about mm. it's a it's an art mm-hmm. you know and so my friend was vice president of nationwide insurance and he told me about it he said that he has taken many seminars about the you know promotion because insurance business is very important yeah that you promote and that you communicate and publicize and all this and so I asked him about it and he told me, he says, well, bridging is one of the most important things. So he taught me about that. And uh, of course, I was on Johnny Carson's show mm-hmm. promoting Conan the Barbarian, just to give you an example. And Johnny Carson always says to me, he says, so, Arnold, oh, this is really unbelievable. He says, how long have you been working out? When did you start and why did you start working out? So I said to myself, okay, if I answer this question in a thorough way, he will not sell one ticket. <laughs> To go to see Conan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, I got to go and bridge. Mm. And so what I did was I answered very briefly because you have to, otherwise it sounds stupid if you talk about something else. But I would say, say Johnny, it's a very good question. I say I was 15. But I tell you, at 15, I did not know that one time it is absolutely essential to have this kind of a body. He says, imagine... Conan the Barbarian, (laughs) the way Frank Frazetta painted Conan the Barbarian with the muscles and with the determination and all of this stuff. And there was no one around Mm. to do this character. That's why they've never filmed Conan. (laughs) I said, now here I come, Mr. Universe body, and now I do Conan the Barbarian. And it is now believable because people, when they see me handle the sword and killing all these people... I said, it's believable because they see the muscles. So I said, not in my wildest dreams with 15 did I think that one day those muscles would be so important yeah. in the movies and stuff like that. <laughs> and so I sold now, i yeah. answer this question, I started with yeah. 15, but I sold Conan the Barbarian, you know, the muscles and the fight scenes and then would add on. I said, there was this one scene with the camel and I punched out the camera and blah, blah, blah. So you then just spice it up. And yeah. so this is what... You know, selling and communicating is all about. I was very fortunate that my head was in that so much because when I was governor, that is the most important thing, Mm. to communicate to the people because otherwise, how do you get their vote? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you need the people. You need to go and say, here's why we need infrastructure. Mm. We need to rebuild our roads. We need to build extra freeways, extra highways extra tunnels and bridges and on-ramps and off-ramps. I say, why? Because you want to go to your kids' school and watch them play football. You don't want to be late two hours. Mm. I say, how many people get stuck in traffic everyone will be raising their hands? I say, well, let's eliminate it. (laughs) Let's terminate this problem. Let's build more roads. Vote yes on Proposition 1A. So I explained it to them, not just talking about infrastructure, which politicians normally do, but people don't know what infrastructure is. Mm. I cannot expect them to know what infrastructure is. Is it the electric lines, the power lines? Is it the plumbing? Is it the sewage? Is it the building freeways? Is it building high-speed rail? What is infrastructure? Well, all of this is infrastructure, but it's so now You have to explain it to people by saying, do you ever get stuck in traffic? Mm. Of course, everyone does. So then you say, well, let's build more freeways. Let's go and vote for this so they don't get stuck in traffic. So then they know, ah, it moves the traffic faster because we get stuck in traffic. So this is why communicating, 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 selling, selling, selling. This is what it's about.
1: Oh, those are great stories, great examples. Yeah, I love those. I hope everyone who's listening and watching can latch on and get some insights for their own challenges. Those, Those are great. And I love that. You're going all the way from governor through to the gym and the the story of you running around (laughs) in your swimsuit is brilliant. What's the, uh, there was one story actually that aligns with that selling point that uh, Will Smith tells of meeting you. And he said that he walked into a room and it was you, Sylvester Stallone and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And you were the three that inspired him to go international. So he said that when he spoke to you three, you all said to him that the market in the USA is huge, but until you become a global superstar, you're not really a superstar. Right. And so in the same way as you were saying you were going around the 30 cities of the U.S., you've done a lot of world touring as well for the movies. Well, I explained to him that when I got
2: in the movies and talking about Conan the Barbarian yeah. was my first big international movie. Again, the studio says we're going to send you to Cannes, to the film festivals, and then we're going to go and send you to London and maybe to Rome, and definitely to Japan. So I said, well, why are we only going to four places? They said, well, this is where the big markets are. Germany, but the Germans always come to England, when we do the press junkets in England, so the Germans are taken care of, then we have the Japanese, we go to Japan, and uh, you're gonna do a big promotion there, and then then America, those are the three big markets. So I said, okay, if this is the three big markets, I said, when I look at the globe today, I, say, I see so many other potential markets. I say, you don't want to build those. Yeah. You don't want to create those. So I told Will Smith, I said, the story. I said, I told him, I said, I'm going to go to France. I'm going to go to England, to Germany, to Holland, to Finland, to Sweden, to Norway. I want to go all over the place. I want to go to the Middle East. I want to go to Africa. I want to go to Australia. I want to go all over the place. I said they, they said, you're nuts. <laughs> I said, "So because I was thinking about two things. One is to promote the movie, and the other one is I have to promote myself because most people know me as a bodybuilder, mm-hmm. not as an actor. So this is a good opportunity for me to go around the world for the next month and to promote myself as, well, I now, I'm doing movies. Yeah. And this is my first big movie. It's, you know, uh, it's Conan the Barbarian. So it was like a great opportunity. So I told him that I said, so I slowly started building an international market. Mm. And the studios were extremely pleased because every one of my movies started to get bigger and bigger internationally. Mm. So it used to be that one-third was international box office and two-thirds was domestic. Mm-hmm. Then with me, it started going to be 50-50. So 50% domestic, 50% international, and eventually it became one-third domestic and two-thirds international. So imagine how much more money that it added because of that. And so this was a tremendous power. So I said to them, I said, don't ever assume that everyone will know about the movie. I said, you got to go there. You got to show your face. The people, the journalists like to shake your hand. They like to sit down on a round table with all of their mics sticking out, the the 10 leading radio programs of that country. They sit all day on the table. You're the the 11th person that sits there. And now you're telling them stories about the movie. Mm I said, and they go back to the radio stations. I have an exclusive interview with Will Smith and he's, a, he's coming out with this movie. It is hot. He looks fantastic. Great actor and all this. I said, hey, how can it hurt? Mm. But do it. Just promote yourself internationally and go from country to country. And he said, thank you for this really great advice. Mm. Because if the studio would have said that to me, I would have just said, why did you want to use me? Yeah. He says, but you saying it, I buy in. I believe it. <laughs> And he has been thankful ever since because of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's great yeah. advice. It's great advice. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's,
2: it's, it's, you know, you've got to always let people know that uh, there's nothing sleazy about the marketing and there's so many actors always feel like it's beneath them to go out and sell the movie. And I tell them, I said, look, it, no matter what you do, if you're a painter and you paint great paintings or if you're a musician and you want to promote an album or if you're a movie actor and you promote your movie, I said, you have to do that because it's the only way people will know about it. The more you do and the better you do it and to actually say the right things about the movie that is snappy, that really makes people curious when it goes, that's where it's all about. It's an art by itself. Not just the acting is an art, but the selling is an art as well.
1: Yeah. What I love about what you're saying, it's, you know, for me as well, I only moved to LA five years ago and I feel like I can be quite audacious and, you know, driven as well. And so when I'm listening to you, what I always find it's interesting because the most successful people in the world, they have this audacity in that they already see it as reality and everyone else, because it's so audacious, people are trying to catch up or they can't really see it, they can't figure it out. And you almost have to have that trust that you know where it can go and how big it can get. Having actually achieved all your goals, becoming the biggest bodybuilder of all time, going further, becoming this huge movie star, you know, you just said that you had to go to educate people at one point, that you even were a movie star. I think you've been good at redefining yourself and re-educating people about who you are from bodybuilding to movies to obviously governor of California. How does it feel? to have lived out so many of your visions that you saw so clearly as that young man in Austria, how does that actually feel? I've always been on this mission to find things that really line up with what I care about for a healthier lifestyle. And that's when I discovered Laird Superfood. It felt like discovering a perfect match, something that totally clicked with what I believe in and my goal for better health. One of their products that I absolutely love is their performance mushroom. They've collected some of the most powerful mushrooms in nature and brought them together in this amazing superfood blend. These different types of natural mushrooms, such as chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, and maitake, are praised for their talent in fighting stress, supporting your immune system, and giving your brain a boost. Another one that I love is their daily prebiotic greens. Each serving is a complete mix of fruits and vegetables Fixing a common problem which is that 90% of Americans don't get enough vegetables and 80% don't get enough fruit in their diets. They taste like a light citrus burst from real food such as pineapple, lemon oil and orange oil, fruit powders such as apple, no heavy sugars, syrups or stevia. These greens are 40% more affordable than other big brands. You can get a month's supply in a bag for your daily routine at home or grab the single-serve sachets for when you're on the go. Check out lairdsuperfood.com and grab yours today. Use the code ONPURPOSE20 when you check out and score 20% off your first purchase. Easter is right around the corner. That's right, this year, Easter is Sunday, March 31st. Hop into some serious savings with 20% off pickup orders now through March 30th. Use promo code SPRING20 to save on all the things you need to build baskets they'll love at CVS. Find trending beauty buys, chocolate bunnies, delightful toys for kids and so much more. Visit cvs.com forward slash Easter for details.
2: Well, to be honest with you, I always say to people, I would never switch my life with anyone's life, no matter who it is, because I think that I am the most privileged person in the world. I mean, it's like to to be able to to live this many types of lives, to live the life of an athlete, of an amateur, of a professional, to really get the inside scoop. Because when you get the inside scoop of one profession, of one uh, sport, You pretty much, because you hang out with the top football players, with Joe Namath and all of those guys in the 70s, I mean, and with George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. So you get to know really the inside of all sports, basically. And uh, I think to learn everything about sports, to then learn everything about entertainment, to be now with the greatest of the greatest. I mean, imagine that I still met people like Frank Sinatra and... uh, Bob Hope, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and all of those guys. The guy that trained me in comedy was Bill Milton Burrow. And, you know, all these old-timer guys, Jimmy Stewart. I mean, the list goes on, Lucille Ball. The list goes on and on and on to meet all of these people, to work with them, to do photo shoots with them, to go to parties with them, to be at dinner with them, at charity event uh, events with them. I mean, it's really staggering to have this kind of experience. And then to travel around the world and to meet all these political leaders from Gorbachev and uh, the, you know every president in the United States, from Ronald Reagan to Jimmy Carter to George Bush and to everyone that the list goes on and on and on, Clinton and all those guys, uh, all the way, Nixon, I mean, Everyone I met and talked to and hung out with and learned from, Mandela. Um, so it, this is like, I mean, who has the privilege to do that and to travel around the Middle East and to do the things that people say you can't do, like to go from an Arab country to Israel or from Israel to Iraq. I hop back and forth all over the place, from Iraq to Jordan to Israel, uh, to Kuwait, I mean, everywhere. And, uh, you know, visiting the American soldiers over there and uh, to be there. I mean, it's its staggering, this kind of life. And then to go into the political arena mm-hmm. and then to figure out what makes really a city or a state or a country run and tick and what kind of players do you need and how do you negotiate uh, with all of these people and how do you bring... Democrats and Republicans together. And how do you come up with your own vision of how things should work? Because very quickly, you know, I was a hardcore Republican. Mm. But very quickly I realized that that's not where the action is. Mm. The action is not with one party. That America is Democrats and Republicans decline to state independence together. And so that's the team. And as a team together... We can do great things, but if you start splitting the team, you start falling apart. It's like any football team or basketball team. So I said to myself, the action is, Arnold, bringing them together. Mm. Don't insult the Democrats. Don't insult anybody. Bring them together. And let's be a public servant rather than a party servant. Mm. And so that was my new theme. I was so proud of myself. As Maybe 5,000 other politicians have talked about this, yeah. but I mean, Obama said there's a blue state, no, no red state, there's only the United States, but there's a bogus lines really. I mean, it sounds good, but I mean, the reality is different. So you really have to show leadership quality and you really have to kind of make an effort to bring both of them together, and to be not afraid to say to the Democrats, as a Republican, I need your help. Mm. But together, we can solve this problem. I cannot do alone health care reform as a Republican. I need the Democrats, I need everybody. You know, and so this is the kind of things, or building infrastructure, doing anything in this state. It was our best work we did together. So I cannot give any party a credit. I have to give the credit to the politicians, and to the people. And the people really enjoyed that when Democrats and Republicans got together and campaigned together for propositions, to vote for the certain propositions and all of that. So so I think, so I was very, very uh, privileged to be able to do all of those things and to have millions of people listen to you and vote for you. And that of course goes to another chapter and another subject in a book, which is, you know, give something back to the community. Mm -hmm. You know, because we are not self-made people. And I talk about this at great length in the book, because it, you know, people so many times call me a self-made man. I know what you're talking about, but I always want to make clear at the same time, I'm not a self-made man. I was created by my mother and my father. I was created by my teachers, by my coaches, by my bodybuilding champions that they were my, my idols and uh, Joe Weider that brought me to America, Eric Morris, who was my acting coach, Chuck Nicholson that recommended this acting coach. So all of these people had a tremendous amount. My wife did help me in every step of the way, you know, with the kids. My kids were really helpful in my career. So I am a product of all of that. And so I think it's important that when we recognize that we have gotten the help, that we therefore give help back. So that's why you have to ask yourself the question, okay, now, if everyone helped me to be where I am, how can I not go out and help? Whom? Who can I help? What can I help them with? And uh, I talk about it in a book that my father-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, had this great line at the university speech at uh, Yale, where he said, don't look always in a mirror. Don't look at yourself, you know. Destroy that mirror. You will be able to look beyond that mirror. And then you will see the millions of people that need your help. Mm. And so this is what it's all about, is to not just look at yourself or be self-consumed. Yes, you can be. But don't forget ever that there's a lot of people out there that need your help. Mm. And even though when people say, well, what can I do? I'm a nobody. I don't have any money. That's bogus. It's an excuse right off the top that I don't want to do anything. Because when you see um, Hawaii burning down to the ground, there's a lot of things that everyone can do. But just taking some food and bringing it to those poor folks, bringing some clothing, going out and going to some fundraising and bring a few dollars to them. Whatever it is, you can do something. Or to go into some inner city school and to help with an after school program and to help kids r- learn how to read, especially since you know in America now we have so many students that are, where English is a second language, mm-hmm. you know to help them to learn English and all this stuff. So there is endless amount of things. I just always felt that have to be all out. I remember when Rudy Giuliani called me, when he was mayor of New York. He said, oh my God, you know, our buildings came down and we are creating a twin tower fund. Can you send a million dollars? I said, yeah, you got it tomorrow. In two seconds, I didn't even think about it, you know. So said, that's what you do when we need, needed masks. Uh, when COVID uh, broke out in and, and Los Angeles, the hospitals didn't have any masks. So I immediately put in a million dollars Towards a fund that we put together uh, to, to, to raise eight million dollars, and then to get masks uh, from uh, all over the world, and especially from Asian countries, and so we can supply them with masks and gowns uh, and with gloves and with ventilators and stuff like that. There was a company called Flexport that was was within days got us the masks, even though the government said. There are no masks around. We can't get any masks. So, you know, these are things like that. Or it doesn't matter if it's an earthquake or if this or that. You go out and you reach out and that's why I'm involved in after school programs. That's why I was involved in Special Olympics and, and being a trainer and a coach for Special Olympians to help them with uh, winning medals and uh, becoming champions and all of this stuff. So that's what life is all about, to to receive and to give.
1: Mm. Well said, Arnold, well said. And uh, yeah, definitely more notes in the book for anyone who wants to dive into some of those stories. But Arnold, we end every episode with a final five. So these are a fast five where you have to answer each question in one word or one sentence maximum. So these are your final five. The first question is, what is the best advice you've ever heard or received? Believe in yourself. Second question, what is the worst advice you've ever heard or received? It can't be done. Good answers. Question number three, you've mastered so many things in your life. What are you currently trying to master?
2: Bring all of my talents together into one. The show business, fitness, and uh, politics all into one and make that be my new kind of a vision and drive to help the world.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm going to scrap the final. What does that look like? That's fascinating. What does that look like right now in your mind as you develop it? You can use more than one sentence. I want to be out there and
2: help with environmental issues because I learned about that during my governorship. I want to be out there and help with healthcare issues, with uh, aging issues, with fitness issues. Uh, with entertaining issues, and because it's important to entertain people. So all of those kind of things. So uh, I have the Schwarzenegger Institute, uh, where we deal with a lot of those various different issues and policies to make it a better world. And I have my environmental conference in Vienna every year where the world comes together, 80, 90 countries come together, and we talk about the environment and how to make this a fossil fuel free world and reduce pollution. So we don't have 7 million people die every year because of pollution.
1: Mm, beautiful. I can't, can't wait to see the impact you have in that space. Uh, question number four has two parts to it. What is your biggest personal success and what is your biggest personal failure?
2: Well, I think that my biggest personal success is uh, to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. That I visualize them and turn them into reality. And I think my biggest failure, obviously, is my marriage Uh, thing from a personal point of view and from a professional point of view. I've had many movies go in the toilet. I've lost bodybuilding competitions and powerlifting competitions and all that stuff. So I had plenty of failures. It's always important to bring that up because people should know that you never will be able to go through life without failures. Mm -hmm. Failures make us learn. Uh, Failures make you stronger. Pain makes you stronger. So I think all of that is good.
1: Yeah, let's let's address both of those because it's so true. Like on the outside, like you said, people can say, so privileged, you met the presidents, you did this, you did that. You've, you know, all the wins. You know, when I'm looking around this room, like everything's iconic, you know, no, nothing's unrecognizable across the whole world. It's all recognizable. But the, did you ever feel the pressure when things started to go well of like, God, the next movie's got to be bigger and the next movie's got to be bigger? Did you feel that or did you just kind of, you were just loving it so much that you just kept building. And if it went wrong, that it didn't hurt you that much.
2: Um, You know, I never really felt uh, that much pressure, probably about anything, to be honest with you, because I knew what I wanted. And uh, I never really fell for this thing of what did the people expect me to do. So I just, I create my vision and when everyone says it's impossible, I go after it with vengeance. It's like I go all out 100%. And it gives me joy. And it is what is great about it is that every time that you accomplish something really big, you see and become aware of other things that are new challenges sure. that you didn't even think about. Yes. I mean, did I ever think about that I will fight for the environment? No. Mm. But because of the governorship, you know, this is like the thing I talk about in the book mm. about Hillary mm-hmm. who climbs Mount Everest and he's up there and all of a sudden he sees another peak <laughs> to be climbed, right? And yeah. he said, that's the next one. So there's the same thing. I go and win the governorship. I go in there. I start working on the governor and all the different policies and I'm meeting all these scientists and experts and talk about, they talk about you know, how many people die because of pollution and we can do something about it. And I dive into that. It's a new peak. Oh, my God. No one has really explored that. Forget the 19% of renewables. We have to have 50% renewables. Forget about you know, reducing greenhouse gases by 5%. We have to reduce it by 25%. And we have to do it by 2020. And so you set big goals. So this is the new peak mm. that you're climbing. Mm. And you go all out for that. Then when you get there, then you see another peak beyond that. So this is what is. Um, fun yeah. and this makes my life rich yeah. you know that is always something new and different and I, 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 I tell you that um, I also learn when I for instance listen to you because you come from a totally different world right so just you have a different spin on things so that when I listen to this I say oh that's an interesting way of looking at it mm. and so I think we have to learn from one another mm. And so I think that you and I, we have a lot in common anyway, because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, definitely. Right? I mean, to think about it, it, it's not just that I want to be having one of the most popular podcasts, but you have to be a curious son of a bitch <laughs> to go and to be really good in what you do. Yeah. And this is what I noticed about your podcast. You're really curious, mm. a natural curiosity. Thank you. And I think that is... Yeah, but you have to have it. Mm-hmm. You have to have curiosity. It shows in your eyes. It shows in everything when you ask the question and all this. You know, it's like when you see journalists, mm-hmm. which I hate, you <laughs> know, they have like a piece of paper and you say, okay, very interesting. Says, now, let me ask you another question. Um, you want them said this, isn't And then how do you feel that they, if they read it off the paper? Mm-hmm. And then when you answer, they don't even look at you in the eyes. They look at the paper for the next question, mm. right? So I detect, didn't detect any of that from thank you. Man. I yeah. mean, every question came without looking at anything <laughs> because you're curious. And so I think I just wanted to
1: mention Yeah, uh, Thank you, thank yeah, you, Arnold. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And absolutely. it means a lot coming from you. And I am curious because I grew up as a fan who didn't. Yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. But I think I'm even more curious because you chose to write a book about being useful and life lessons. And I think that that world is what I gravitate towards because I think learning from the greats is all we have. And I think when we ignore to learn from the greats, that's when we make we have to make our own mistakes for exactly. no reason. We can avoid so many. So that's right. yeah. no, I am very curious about you, and I think you're also a fantastic storyteller. So that helps. Well, thank uh, you. you get into so much detail and so many examples and everything. So it's it's yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you. Uh, but I tell you, it was, yeah.
2: it was really fun doing this book because. I really had to kind of drill down and think about a lot of the things that comes natural for me, you know, to tell stories about, because you, each one of the rules, you want to be able even the sub rules and the sub sub rules, you want to be able to tie it to a story so that people can relate to, like I was talking about infrastructure. You can talk to people about infrastructure all you want. (laughs) They can relate to it, but as soon as you tie it to getting stuck in traffic. Making it to the recital in the school, and you come late an hour because of the traffic and all this. Then they can relate to that. And the same is with with any of the rules. You know, I kind of uh, had fun doing it. It was sometimes frustrating because you want to do you know, 10 rules, and the publisher then says, no, you can only do seven, because this book should only have 268 (laughs) pages rather than 350 pages, and all of this crazy stuff you go through. But it was a really, really great process, and never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I would occupy this space at all. And it really happened just totally coincidentally where more and more people, you know, when when you finish with the governorship, I was asked to do public speaking engagements, like ex presidents and stuff like that. And uh, as I'm traveling around, I think one time, someone said, can you pump up our crowd? We have like a thousand, you know, real estate people. Uh, We want you to, to just pump them up. So you do a little bit of success story. Yeah. And all of a sudden they took off like wildfire. Every one of the public speaking engagements they've had since then, they want to go and have me talk about success, the rules to success and all of that stuff. So it's like something I didn't even think about because I always was a motivator. You know, if it's the Special Olympics or for after-school programs or be just my buddies around in the gym that became my training partners because I always have this kind of energy, right? Yeah. Come on, let's do a set. You can do another set. But wait a minute, you're stopping me 10 reps. Give me five more reps. Let it paint. Let it give pain, you know, and, all, and you just pump, pump, pump. So I have this energy. So I never thought that this would be used then for seminars and eventually for a book like this. It's like, yeah. it's like crazy. No, it's where fantastic. Where life takes you.
1: Yeah. It's fantastic. It's yeah. it's beautiful to see it through your eyes and through your yeah. lens and for us all to dream as well. And I have one final question for you. And actually, before I ask it, when you said we have a lot in common, there, there's so many different parallels that I'll tell you later, because when I was listening to you, I have a very different life, but so many similar lessons I've picked up along the way. And I think as humans, that's what brings us together. We may not have the same life story. Right. We don't grow up in the same places. We don't have the same parents, but you pick up the same messages from the world and the same lessons from the world. Right. So the fifth and final question I wanna ask you is, if you could create one law that everyone in the world had to follow, what would it be?
2: Oh, well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> Maybe to get off fossil fuels. That we have to use alternative energy. Mm. If it is nuclear with producing energy itself, if it is for cars, electric or hydrogen, I just feel like if we have seven million people die because of pollution, mm. I think by having a law like that and eventually make it stick, I think that we could save those lives. Mm-hmm. And this is like more than any of the wars that they've fought and any of the other disasters or anything like this. It's like so many people die because of pollution. So, I mean, that's That's one thing. So, I mean, you know, then probably tomorrow morning I call you and say, I have another law. Great.
1: (laughs) That's a great answer. (laughs) We've never had that one, though. We've never had that answer. So, it's a brilliant answer. But you've been doing so much work in... I feel like you've been doing so much work in the plant based space, you know, with the documentaries on game changes, like climate change. Now you're talking about, like, it seems like this has been like an immersion for you. Well, you know, that
2: we know it's a crazy Here's another crazy one. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's all, my life is so insane. <laughs> I believe it. No, but I mean, it's like, I'm working with this guy, Jim Cameron. I do Terminator One. Mm-hmm. We become friends, we ride the motorcycle together. We hang out together. And then he does, you know, Terminator 2 and he does other movies and the Titanic and uh, Avatar and all this. Yeah. But he is an environmentalist. Mm-hmm. But when we did Terminator, I never knew that. And he never talked about it. So then I, I become governor. And now he goes and he says to me, he says, I, I want you to make, to make you aware of that the power companies are still resisting the reverse metering i say, reverse metering what the hell are you talking about he says well it's the thing you know when you produce energy from solar and you produce too much you want to put it back on the grid mm-hmm. that's reverse metering and you get credit for it wow. so i walk away and i say i how does jim cameron knows no, but reverse metering, and about that subject. You know, of course, it's very clear because he's a, a genius, right? Yeah. And he just is, with technology and stuff like that, he's unbeatable. Yeah. So, but sure enough, I go into the office the next day, in the governor's office, and I said, look, guys, I want to talk a little bit about reverse metering. Oh, I'm so glad you bring this up because fucking power companies are fighting us tooth and nail, they don't want to do reverse metering, but we want to pass a, a, a law, so we're telling the legislators to send us a bill so that you can sign it and blah, blah, blah. So this just gives you an example mm. of what impact Jim Cameron had on mm. me mm. with issues that is way, be, way beyond, you know, uh, movies and stuff like that. Then he goes and he says to me, I said to him, I said, my doctor said to me, he says, I should get off meat. And they should only have once a week meat. Mm. And he says, "Well, hello, where have you been? I mean, I've been vegan for five years." <laughs> so I said, "What?" And he says, "I've been vegan for five years. I haven't eaten any meat for five years. You don't need meat to have a..." And he goes crazy <laughs> now, right? And he says, fact we're doing a documentary right now uh, on a thing, you know, on, on eating plant-based food." So all of a sudden, he's the expert. Now I sit down with him, and he's telling me for hours about you know plant-based food and how he can combine and create the right amino acids to create the right protein and all of a sudden how he can get strong. And here's, And now he lists the name of the athletes, boxers, wrestlers, weightlifters, UFC fighters, everything that are on plant-based food. Mm. Think about that. So now I got into it, and I was part of this documentary, right? Uh, And now I eat like maybe once a week meat. So I would say 70% Mm. at least I cut down my meat intake for health reasons. And it happens to be also for environmental reasons. Mm -hmm. As he explained, I said, Arnold, what do you think where most of the pollution comes from? More than from transportation comes from breeding livestock says, are you kidding me? He says, no, read up on it. He says, I sent you some stuff. So I'm reading up on it. Sure enough, 28% of the pollution comes from breeding livestock. So he says, if people wouldn't eat meat, mm. he says, and wouldn't have the animals being kind of like uh, the whole cell, or kind of like the the, the 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 vegetable protein goes into the animal, then they eat it in the it. then you eat the animal, you still get the, the, the you know, the plant-based food, but through the animal now, it's, just, it's, it's it's bullshit. We can do better than that. Yeah. Let's cut out the meat. <laughs> it's just amazing how I get exposed to various different things in my life and make me passionate about ways that I couldn't even ever have planned. Mm. You know, this kind of relationships and this kind of knowledge you could never plan on.
3: Yeah.
1: And do you also have a meditation practice? Is that right? Or-
2: I, I used to. Mm. In the seventies, there was a time when I got out of bodybuilding and into show business. And there was all kinds of things happening in the mid seventies. So I was doing my last year of competition uh, in 1975 in South Africa, Mr. Olympia. So I was training for that. I was finishing off my movie, Stay Hungry with Barbara Raferson and Sally Fields and Jeff Bridges. You know, uh, doing that. And I was at the same time going full food- Plast in the show business, taking acting classes and investing my money in real estate. So I was no matter which way I was turning, I was like scrambling. And at that point, I did not know much about how to isolate and just concentrate on one thing at Mm a time. So I'm hanging out with this guy, this skinny rat down on the beach. He's a a transcendental meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. But he never talked about it. So I said to him, I said, yeah, I feel frantic. I mean, it's like everything is so a little bit overwhelming for me. I'm doing this movie. I'm shooting the documentary, pumping iron. I'm going to the competition. I'm uh, finishing off Stay Hungry. I'm trying to do real estate and become a millionaire. Uh, I'm all over the place. He says, well, let me talk to you a little bit. Mm. Very calmly talks to me about it. And he says, why don't you come up to Westwood? and take some transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. He says, I cannot be your teacher, even though I'm a teacher. I said, you're a teacher? Transcendental? Yeah. He said, but I cannot be your teacher It's our rules, where when you have friendship and suffering, if there's someone else, he says, but don't worry. I said, you yeah, I'll be the right guy. Mm. So I go up there and I do the, I learn now about meditation. Mm. And as I got into it, I was then doing meditation like for months, wow. throughout the summer, that hectic summer. I mean the summer was over it wasn't that hectic anymore (laughs) so what I learned from meditation was you know how to kind of like first of all rejuvenate the mind and to kind of disconnect the mind but also what I learned was how to focus on one thing at a time Mm. and to just look at that with no peripheral vision Mm. so that nothing comes in solve this and then Mm. Don't think about anything else. And then go over here Mm. and solve this. Mm. And then solve this. Because he he said you can never do all of it in one time anyway. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you single out things, it becomes much more approachable and much more doable. Mm -hmm. He said to me, I remember he said, when you drive down and Venice Boardwalk with your bike, He says, you will look sometimes on this busy day and it will be all packed. He says, it would look like you would not be able to go through Mm. this crowd because you're looking at the whole shot, Mm.
3: the
2: whole port walk all the way down a mile, Venice. So it's overwhelming. He says, but if you go now with your bike slowly, you negotiate around the people and all of a sudden you will find spaces where you can go, where you don't bump into anybody. You know, it says, and all of a sudden you're on the end of it and it was totally doable <laughs> because it took like one person at a time yeah. kind of like bicycling around. He says, and that's the way it is with everything. He says, if you just look at it one thing at a time, you'll be able to solve any problem.
3: Mm.
2: And that's why he says you see people like the Pope that has obviously his Daily routine, a big daily routine. But these guys, they get up at five o'clock in the morning. They work out for an hour and a half, very calmly, get that out of the way. Then they read newspapers like Pope, Pope John Paul. I remember he told me that he read newspapers in six different languages. So they read the newspapers. Mm. Then they get that done. Then they go and take a shower. And then they go and have the first meeting. So this is how they step by step The approach the the, the day. And he says, the people that get done the most, you can load them up with even more responsibilities because they're very organized and very systematic Mm -hmm. in their approach. And so I've learned that. So now I've never really been that frantic again. But if I would become frantic, I would go right back into the meditation because I know now how to do it.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah. Arnold, everyone who's been listening or watching, the book is called Be Useful, Seven Tools for Life. Uh, you can grab it right now. We're going to put the link in the comments and the captions so that you can order it right away. As you can tell, Arnold's a phenomenal storyteller. Inside of it a lessons, stories. And one of the things I definitely have in common with Arnold that I appreciate about him is how simple the ideas, how easy they are to digest. They're not complicated. And, you know, you don't have to learn something new. You can actually just sit there, take them in, listen. And all of a sudden you start going, wait a minute, maybe it is that easy. Maybe it is that simple. And I think that's something that we desperately need in today's world. So Arnold, I thank you for putting all your lessons into a book for us. I thank Thank you for telling so many amazing stories. And I signed
2: 17,000 copies Wow. Pages. Because now that they sent you the pages. Yes, yes. You know, so I'm getting these boxes with pages. Each box was a thousand <laughs> pages. And I said to myself, wait a minute now. You know, first was like fourteen thousand for the American company. And then there was another the three and a half thousand or four thousand for the for the company. And they're gonna be company. in bookstores? Yeah, well, yes. So yeah. what the what they do is I think that the first of the books are all signed. Yes. So now people would when they order, pre-order, they will wear signed books. I nice. think that was the idea. So in the old days, that you would go to a bookstore and you would sign all yeah. the books yourself. And then you sit there for hours and hours. And be, uh, after an hour, you sign 100 books, right? Because you have to open up the book and it's always yeah. slow. Now it's these pages. So I was just like signing, <laughs> signing, signing. I was for three months, I was signing and signing and signing. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, 17,000.
1: Yeah. I can relate. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I never thought that I'd have to do that many
2: signatures. <laughs>
1: I love it. Well, it's available now. Make sure you tag me and Arnold on any social media platforms you're using, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, X, or wherever you are. I'd love to see what resonated with you, what stuck with you. Keep sharing those posts across social media because I love seeing what is going to stay with you, what you're going to practice, what are you going to try? What are you going to implement in your life from this episode that will help you become happier, healthier, or more healed? Thank you again, Anu. Thank you. Thank you. If you love this episode, you'll love my interview with Will Smith on owning your truth and unlocking the power of manifestation.
2: Anybody who hasn't spoken to their parents or their brother, call them right now. Don't think you're going to have a chance to call them tomorrow or next week. That opportunity with my father changed every relationship in my life.
1: To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash Healthier Happens Together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be the chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable.